set the stage. Last week, if you were here, um, what we were looking at was Jesus entered into the scene, and everything that was being expected about what the Messiah was going to look like didn't happen. As Jesus came into the scene, there was uh, this expectation that he'd be this conquering king, that he would be this ruler that would come and, and overthrow the Romans and free them. And Jesus comes in on this very humble, different way. And it, it caught everyone off guard. I mean, it was to the point where, where they just couldn't wrap their minds around how in the world this person could be the Messiah. And so the religious leaders of that time determined that this isn't the Messiah. And so they determined that he needed to die. And so Today, we're going to look at Jesus' triumphal entry, and we're going to be looking at his crucifixion. And, and one thing to keep in mind, you know, as we've been talking about this series, and the, it's, you know, we called it his story, it's God's story, it's ultimately the story of God redeeming the world, it's this gospel, the gospel as a, as a holistic view, right? And today, we are looking at the culmination, the death. Next week, we're going to look at the resurrection. But one thing we always want to keep in mind as we're looking at this story is there's a story, and then... I'm going to, this week, get into some more, like, some deep theological truths about the crucifixion and why it matters, and Jesus' death and resurrection, and why it's different. And so, bear with me, we get into the weeds a little bit, but I think it's super effective, because so often, we say, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and we're like, yes, that's awesome, but why? Why? It wasn't an accident. It wasn't um, a situation where it was a series of unfortunate events. It was God's plan, ultimately, he came to live the life we can't live and die the death that we deserve. And so let's look at Jesus riding into Israel. On the Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. It says, Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. and He will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey and a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and put, them on their, uh, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread out their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went before him, and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna, the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And so we have Jesus coming in on a donkey. Now, one thing that's interesting about kings, when they come in to a city like this, this is triumphal entry. Was, this was very unkingly. Because when they come into a city, that there, there's this parades happening. It's usually because either they're going to war or they've returned from war, that they've gone to conquest 
or they're coming back from conquest. And if they're the one that's riding, that means that they were victorious. And so they don't ride donkeys, they ride horses, majestic steeds, right? Like they come in strutting, and often if they're returning from conquest, they have their enemy in tow behind them, and they're showing their might and their power and their greatness, and they're showing how they conquered this enemy and how they are the king. And yet the king of kings, the creator of the world, comes in in a very different way. He comes on a donkey. Now, kings did ride donkeys back then, but it was often not at times of war, but at times of peace. And it was when the king was coming to be with his people. He was coming in a very humble state. And so the prophecy that was saying about the king was saying that when the Messiah comes, he is not going to come conquering, but he's going to come in humility. They wanted conquest, and that is not how he was coming. And what were they screaming? They were screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The king of David has come. The son promised. What does Hosanna mean? Hosanna means save us. Save us is ultimately what it's saying. It's saying, like, save us, protect us, free us, all of these things. Now, that's coming from Psalm 118, where it literally is, save us. We pray, O Lord. We pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so the people were quoting this messianic psalm about the son of David that would come. They're screaming, save us. And so the people are going, we need to be saved from Rome. Like the king is coming to save us from Rome. They're lining up. They're ready. He's coming. Maybe this is the moment the revolt starts. Maybe this is the moment that the war begins, that we can be freed from Rome. Israel was a powder keg. It was it was a few years later, the whole city goes into revolt, and they ultimately get destroyed. What's interesting, as the people are screaming conquest, celebrating their king coming to free them from Rome, Jesus is entering the city, it tells us in Luke chapter 19, weeping. Weeping, knowing that he is not going to come and conquer Rome, but that years later, Rome is going to conquer them and destroy the city. This is only the second time we see the the, the Bible tells us about Jesus weeping. And he enters the city. And this is where we see another aspect of how disappointing Jesus was. They're expecting conquest. They're expecting war. They're expecting revolt. They're expecting, let's overturn Rome. And what does Jesus do? Matthew 21, 12 and 13. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. They expected Jesus to overturn and overthrow Rome. And what does he do? He overthrows the money changers, those that sold pigeons. Here's the thing. If somebody went to worship and they needed to have sacrifice, they needed to go to the temple of sacrifice, a Jewish person would go, if, if they lived far away, this is Passover, right? They're right in the middle of Passover. This is like the, the peak season for pigeon selling, right? Like there isn't a better time. They're set up. This is the most sacred of all feasts going on right now, Passover. But what would happen is you're coming from a far off country is you'd sell maybe what you had and you'd come and you'd buy these animals to sacrifice. And if you're really wealthy, it would be a bull. If you were not as wealthy, maybe you'd be a lamb. If you were poor, it would be a bird, a pigeon. And so we have Jesus 
overturning those that are selling pigeons and stuff because they were taking advantage of the poor. The money changers were dishonest. They had turned it into this retail establishment, and he comes in, and he's overturning their tables. He's driving out the retailers. He is going against the religious establishment, and it is pure like, wait, what? But that's not where he stops. We see that Jesus leaves. He goes after, he leaves the temple after doing that, comes back the next day, enters the temple, and, and the religious leaders in confusion start asking him questions about taxes, and they start asking about the resurrection, and, and you have all of these questions being asked, like, they're, they're trying to wrap their mind, like, how in the world can you be the Messiah, but, like, you're not doing everything we expected you to do? And Jesus challenges them their idea on taxes. He challenges their idea on, on marriage and, and on the resurrection, and he's going, he's contradicting everything they expected but he's revealing the new kingdom that he's bringing. Jesus is challenging the Jewish religious leaders, not the Romans. He is not the Messiah they expected. And so what did they do? They're like, he has to die. Jesus has to die. But it has to be perfect. Here's the thing. Because the Jewish people are, were so at this, like throughout their history, is such a, like, a rambunctious bunch they lost the right to capital punishment. They just couldn't kill whoever they wanted. So when the only person, the only group of people that could let people be executed was the Romans, and the only time Romans even care is if somebody is trying to overthrow the king. That is the only time they cared. And so the, the charges of Jesus saying, I'm, the, I'm God or I'm king of kings, I'm the king of the Jews, Rome could care less about the religious aspect. They had to show that he was trying to cause insurrection so that is the angle they took of, no, he's king of the Jews, like, politically. He is going to overthrow Rome. And so that was the charges that they were going to try and bring against Jesus. Insurrection. So Jesus, knowing what's going on, he spends his last night with his disciples. The last supper, where we get communion kind of instituted and all of these things. And I love that, just on a very practical spot. Jesus spent the last moments with people he loved and cared about the most around the table. I don't think there's a more relational space to interact and, and participate and be in relationship with people than around the table. I think it's something that we should all, I think, strive to be a part of. But it's during this feast. He's celebrating Passover with his disciples. Now, the Passover, if you remember, is one of the most sacred feasts because it was the feast that was remembering the Israelites' freedom from Egypt. God had brought all the plagues, if you remember, and there was this last plague, and it was the plague where he was going to strike down the firstborn of every family. And they could be Egyptian, they could be Israeli, the Israelites, they could be any of them. The firstborn was going to die unless they followed this process, which was involving bringing in a lamb into your family for a couple of days, then killing the lamb, and then taking the blood and putting it on the doorpost. Sounds very gruesome. But what was interesting is that night, whoever was in that house, didn't matter where they were from, what they did. If they were in the house and the angel of death came and saw the blood, they would be saved. And what's so cool is that Jesus is the lamb. He is the Passover lamb. He is the, the lamb whose blood will be shed to bring salvation to all that are in his house. And I think it's so beautiful that this very night with the people that he loves and cares about the most, 
He gets to experience the Passover meal, being the lamb, knowing what's going to happen. Knowing that this, this act that we're, we're remembering is going to actually take place tomorrow, and it's going to bring not just salvation for everybody in this house, but for the whole world, anybody that will have it. And it's during this time that even in this most beautiful moment, we see the disciples getting weird. Like, even in these moments, so like, he's like, hey, one of you is going to betray me. And so they start arguing. It's not me. It's not me. It's not me. And it says that they started arguing about who is the greatest, which I absolutely love, right? Like, I'm the greatest. I would never do that. I'm like, look at all the stuff I do. I can just, we do that all the time, which is hilarious. But like, we maybe not talk about it out loud, but we're like, I'm better than that guy, you know, at least whatever, you know, I don't do this stuff. But they start arguing, and Jesus hears it. And Jesus gets up from the table and starts, and he puts on uh, a towel, and he gets down, and he starts washing their feet. He starts showing them what the greatest does, the greatest serves. And that this new kingdom wasn't going to be that of who is the greatest, but who is the least. And it was going to be a kingdom where who's not ruling over, but who's serving one another. That the kingdom will be that the greatest serves the least. That we're all at the table. Their first is last, the last is first. We've talked a little bit about this. And this night is capped off, this dinner is capped off with Peter proclaiming that even if every one of these people deny you, I will never deny you. And Jesus going, well, actually, spoiler alert, before the rooster crows tonight, you're going to deny me three times. And then off to the garden of Gethsemane they go. They're in the garden, another night of disappointment. Jesus says, hey, will you stay up with me and pray? says that Jesus was in such deep distress that he prayed, and there was like uh, blood coming out of his pores, which is actually a real thing that people are in deep stress. It causes blood to come out. What's crazy is it makes your skin so sensitive, and he's praying, and he goes back to his disciples, and they're asleep, and he wakes them up, and he's like, hey, can you just pray with me? And he goes, and he prays again, and he goes back, and they're asleep, and, and they, they, they fall asleep three times. They're exhausted, right? But so is he, and then Judas comes. And he betrays him with a kiss, right? The most intimate friendship, and especially in Middle Eastern culture, like, it's the, it's the sign of, like, deep friendship. And we don't know what Judas's motives were. We know that he had deep remorse, but whatever the case was, Jesus is betrayed. And the disciples, especially Peter, in his desire to keep the revolt hopes alive, swings his sword, and he tops off this, one of the servant's ears. And Jesus is like, put your sword away, Peter. And he heals the servant. And he says, we are not having a revolt today. And he went, and everybody abandoned him. They're all like, wait a minute. There's no revolt. Like, he's being, he just got arrested. What? And they all flee. And so Jesus is alone. And then we come into his trials, which was an absolute sham. But, hey, looks like some things have never changed, right? Starts with the high priest. He goes to the high priest. And their whole purpose is they're trying to find false witnesses. They're trying to find witnesses, false witnesses, to have a story that says that he's trying to start a revolt, insurrection, that Jesus is trying to overthrow Roman authority in Jerusalem. And they get people and they gather them. And they're so, their plan is so bad, like it's so bad that even the false witnesses cannot corroborate the stories. Like they can't even, if I was going to set up false witnesses, I was just like, just plain and simple. I would talk to them at the same time and say, listen, this is what you need to say so that when I ask you and ask you, you say the same thing. 
They couldn't even do that, right? And so the high priest goes, I can't even get, like, good witnesses. So he sends them the next day to the Sanhedrin. Jesus goes to the Sanhedrin the next day, which is the ruling 70 of Jerusalem. And they ask him. He says nothing. And finally he proclaims that he is basically coming from the right hand of God, that he is God. And they go, what more do we need? Blasphemy. But that's not enough. It's not enough. And so they send him to Pilate. Pilate sees right through it. Pilate is the governor at this time from Rome governing Jerusalem. He sees through it. He sees that it's a sham. But he's scared. He's scared of revolt because then he loses his job. And he's scared of the people not liking him. And so he finds out that Jesus is part of Herod's district. Now, Herod was this weird family, part of this family, that ruled as a king of the Jews, but he literally didn't do anything. They just partied the whole time, him and his family, right? And so he's like, this is in Herod's district, so I'll send it, I'll pass the buck to Herod. So Herod gets Jesus, and Herod, only thing this guy wants is Jesus do a magic trick. That's it. Do a magic trick for me. Show me something cool. Jesus is like, no, I ain't doing that. He's like, well, you're no fun. Go back to Pilate. Sends it back to Pilate. Now Pilate is freaking out because he knows he's innocent. And, pa- and Pilate's wife keeps having these crazy dreams about something going on. Like, and she's like, do not mess with this guy. Bad things will happen. And he's like, okay. So what does he do? He convicts Jesus to death, but he uses kind of, a, it, it's, he, the lashes, 39 lashes, right? That was considered the death penalty in Roman culture because you'd pretty much be dead. He's like, I'm going to, send him to the Roman soldiers, they beat him up, put that crown of thorns on him, and then I'm going to send him to get flogged, and it was a cat of nine tails, and it would go into the muscle, and it would rip out flesh. It wasn't just like whips like you see on TV where it's like little lines. No, it was this idea of causing a mass amount of torture, mass amount of blood loss, 39 times, because they considered if you did it 40 times, you're dead. So they would stop, one short. Pilate's hope was maybe as I show this man's deep suffering, the crowd would have compassion on him and say, that's good enough. But they didn't. They screamed, crucify him. Crucify him. Let him die. So he tries again. Being the feast of Passover, there was a tradition that he would release one of their prisoners so that, that, that he could have favor with the people. And he's like, I'll release, I can release Jesus. And they're like, we don't want you to release Jesus. The man accused of insurrection released to us Barabbas, the man who's literally guilty of insurrection. The murderer, Barabbas, give us him instead, which I think is such a beautiful picture of salvation. Jesus, the innocent, pays the price for the man that is guilty so that he could go free. Barabbas is free. And then he says to him, well, what am I supposed to do with Jesus? And they said, crucify him and so he did at his end with nowhere to go he lets Jesus die he declares him to be crucified their plan was successful so Jesus carries his cross with his bleeding out everywhere up the hill and there he is crucified now with crucifixion sometimes they could use nails sometimes they would use ropes but crucifixion was designed by the Romans as one of the most excruciating ways to die. And the reason for that is you wouldn't die of blood loss. You'd die of suffocation because you wouldn't be able to pull yourself up to catch, to 
catch your breath, right? Eventually, you just wear out and, and suffocate. And so that is what they did. What's so fascinating is in Psalm chapter 22, David writes about crucifixion a little bit, which is interesting because it wasn't invented yet, which is a fun fact. And in Psalm 22, it's a messianic psalm. It's about the Messiah coming. And in verse 16, it says, For dogs have encompassed me, and evildoers encircle me, and they have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So we have even David telling us how everything goes down. And as he's lifted up, nailed to, and they, they drop him into the, the hole where the cross is, kind of drops down, and I'm sure that's very excruciating. All of his shoulders probably went out of joint and all of these things. What's interesting is he's crucified next to two thieves. And I love the story of the thieves on the cross. These men were guilty. These men were dying. They were very aware. They were very aware of their future. And we have in Luke chapter 23 this conversation that they have with Jesus. In verse 39, it says, One of the criminals who were hanged um, railed at him, talking about Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you that today you will be with me in paradise. This conversation is so significant. The reason for that is because we have a man dying, guilty, not able to pay for or make up for anything that he did not able to get baptized, not able to do anything, not able even to raise his hand. Like, you know, then raise your hand if you want to accept Jesus. Like, can't even do that. His hands are already raised. This man is dying, and he says something to Jesus, which I find so beautiful. He says, just remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man had a front row view, and he knew the kingdom was coming. And he said, just remember me. And Jesus' response is so fascinating. He says, today, not not later, but today you're going to be with me physically. You're, we are going to be together today in paradise, which is the end of, of, of our faith, right? Our end of our faith isn't this, this time where we're working to like one day be with God. The end of our faith is that we are with God, that, that we live life in relationship with Jesus, and when we pass to the next, we're with him again. Like there is no break in relationship, that we're with God in paradise. And this man was promised life, and he did nothing to deserve it. Nothing. And I think it's so powerful because when we realize our guilt and when we realize our, our demise, that we are all dying. We're all dying. It's just a matter of when. That to see the Savior and know that there's nothing I can bring, there's nothing I can offer except just remember me. And that, that that act of faith, that small act of faith brought him into the kingdom. The first one in the kingdom was a thief. 
So Jesus, weak and already dying and bleeding out, struggling for every breath, says something that is so profound. He cries out, which is the very first sentence of the Psalm 22 we read, was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, why does that even matter? You have to keep in mind that the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, has been in relationship for all of eternity. There's, there's not a moment when they have not been in this loving relationship. And remember, if we look all the way back at Genesis, when God created human beings, it was that he's opening up the relationship that he's had, and he's inviting humans to participate in this loving relationship that he has been a part of for all of time. And Jesus, the Son, has always been in relationship with the Father, always. And for this moment in time, he's crying out, why have you forsaken me? He is alone. For somehow, some way, we do not understand the relationship was severed for the first time ever. Why? Because sin, okay, sin. Now, the word sin is interesting. I know sometimes people get a little weird about it. It's like sin, super. But here's what the word sin simply means, to miss the mark. What does that mean? Like you're aiming, right? You're not trying to miss. When I aim at something, I'm trying to hit it. I may not hit it, Right? But I'm trying, and I miss, right? It's my best effort, and I can't hit it. That miss is a sin. We also have the word trespass come up in Scripture, and that's, that's, that's the one that I, I feel like I'm used to, where it's like, this is the line, don't cross it, and you're like, right? That's trespass. Also, sin, rebellion against God. So we have this this criteria that sin or trespass both causes a separation between God and human beings. So our best, best efforts that we fail against or our rebellion causes alienation. It causes a separation between a holy and a perfect God. And we see that the reason why Jesus experienced this, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, for our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And in 1 Peter 2, 24, he says, he himself, talking about Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus was alone and alienated and separated from God because our sin and the sin of the person next to you and the sin of the world was placed on Jesus and he, that caused separation. And so as Jesus is taking all this in, he's separated from God, the sin of the world's placed on him, Jesus starts to die rather quickly. He, Jesus dies within six hours, which is very, very fast. I'm guessing because he was bleeding out. Jesus was like dehydration, bleeding out, all of these things. But the last words he utters before he dies is tetelestai. It's a word that's translated, it is finished in your Bible. You read it to say, it is finished. But what it actually means, it is, is finished. It means that, but it means it is finished But because it's paid in full. Well, what is paid? Paid in full. God had determined, and if, if we were to look at the series when we looked at the law, how human beings were to live in relationship with himself. See, God is a holy and perfect God. To be in his presence and have flaws, flaws and imperfections get destroyed, right? So there we can't be in God's presence without something. And so God designs this law, and he says, if you obey this, you will adhere by it, then we can have 
a relationship. But it says in the law, Deuteronomy 27, 26, it says, cursed is everyone that does not abide by all things written in this book. And just to be clear, Paul in Galatians 3 says, to double down on this, says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone that does not abide by all the things written in the book. So it leads to the question, okay, if I can't obey this perfectly, how is one made right with God? And what happens when I don't? Well, the beautiful part is Hebrews 9 talks about how Jesus obeyed the law perfectly. And Hebrews 4.9 tells us that he was without sin. And so Jesus did fulfill everything required of the law. But there's a problem that still remains. Because I sin, because I've missed the mark, there's a debt that I owe to God. I am, at, I am guilty. I am at debt. The Bible tells us in Romans that the wages of sin is death. So I am, there's a cost to my error and to my rebellion that has to be paid. God would not be just if he let guilty go free. He wouldn't be. Somebody has to pay. Like if we let like some murderer go free, we look at that judge or those and go, what are you doing? You're not just. How much more so than God? But it tells us that how we're made right is that not only Jesus live and do everything perfectly, but Colossians 2.13 tells us that God and you, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. And so we see that the requirements necessary to be in relationship with God were paid and taken care of by Jesus, but the debt that we accrued because of our sin and rebellion was taken by Jesus on the cross. It was nailed to the cross. So there's no longer requirements for us to be right with God, like for us to earn God's favor. And all of the error and all the sin and all the brokenness that we've caused is paid for by Jesus on the cross. And so when Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it. It is finished. There's nothing more that you need to do. There's nothing more I need to do. And when he said then that it was paid in full, that means it's paid in full. It means I don't have to pay for it. I don't have to work it off. I don't have to, to work off my, my sin. I don't have to go like, man, I messed up, so i got to punish myself or beat myself up. I can go, Jesus, you paid for it on the cross. Thank you. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Like, that's it. We are free from the debt. Every debt was paid. Every punishment was absorbed. Every requirement was filled. There's nothing left for us to do but simply trust. And so as we see, as we've seen all of these prophecies and all these, these future pictures of what the Messiah is going to be being like, we see it's fulfilled in Jesus. We see that way back in the garden when he talked to Eve and he said, from your seed, someone will come rise up and he will crush the snake and his heel will be wounded. Well, we see that that happened. Jesus was wounded. He was bitten and died, but he ended up crushing the snake of sin and death. We see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. If you remember, God called Abraham to go a people, to leave his people and go to a land that he'd show him. And then he promised this 70-year-old couple that had no children that from their descendants, the whole world would be blessed. And Jesus is a fulfillment of that. We're here today experiencing the blessing that was promised to Abraham thousands of years ago. 
We're experiencing that right now. Jesus is the blessing. Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with Abraham. If you remember early on, we talked about the covenant where God had these, it's kind of gruesome, right? The animals cut in half. And the idea is that both parties would walk through. And the idea was, if I don't fulfill my end of the covenant, let me be torn apart like these animals were torn apart. Really brutal. We don't do it today. But man, maybe we did. We'd have better contracts. But, but we see Abraham, what did he do? He fell asleep. He didn't go through. He didn't walk through. Who walked through? God walked through. God was like, I will fulfill my end, and if I don't, let it be torn apart. And we see Jesus fulfilling that. He was torn because we broke the covenant. God held up his end of the agreement. And lastly, we see Jesus as the Passover lamb whose blood still saves. So what do we do? How do we respond? What do we do? Like, I think... We're transitioning just briefly into this, the application. What do we do with this information? First thing we do is we respond. What does respond look, look like? I think it's four different ways I think we can. First off, we look. We look to Jesus. What do I mean by that? One of the stories in the Old Testament was how the Israelites were coming out of Israel and they were walking in the wilderness. They started rebelling. They started talking trash to Moses. And it says that God sent fiery serpents, poisonous snakes, in. And he started biting the people. And the people began to die. And Moses goes to God and said, what do I do? And he said something really peculiar. He says, make a snake of bronze and hold it up on a post. And so if anybody looks at the snake, looks to the snake, they'll be saved. And so he did that. And there was people that looked at the snake and lived. And there's people that looked at the snake and died. And John chapter 3 tells us that as Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that anybody that looks to him will be saved. And so for us, the idea is we respond by looking to Jesus, trusting and accepting what he's done. It might be the, for the first time. Or it might be something that we always have to do. So once we trust in Jesus, what, do we just stop trusting in him? No. As followers of Jesus, we keep trusting, right? We continue to go back to him and say, you're everything that I've ever needed. You have done everything that's necessary. You have paid everything that is necessary. I keep coming back to that trusting life of faith going like, here I am holding on to you. Another way we can respond is we worship. That's what worship is. We sing. That's a way to worship. We serve. We give. Whatever the case is, we we live our lives. We acknowledge God. That's all responding to the goodness and glory of God. We worship. We worship. We, the worship is ultimately the, kind of the, the view, the gaze of our heart looking to Jesus. We participate in his mission. Those are ways. And I think another way that we can respond is we rest. What do I mean by that? Take a nap. No, just that. Take naps. They're awesome. I love them. But rest. Rest is acknowledging the work has been completed. Rest is acknowledging that it is finished. Does it mean we don't do anything? No. A lot of times we can respond, but resting in a spiritual sense is saying that if I do this, if I serve in this capacity, I'm doing it out of fullness. I'm doing it because not that I have to, not that if I don't do it, God's not going to love me, or if I do it, God's going to love me more. That's not rest. Rest is saying because I'm loved, because I'm fully accepted and fully loved by the Father because of what Jesus has done, I can respond by doing this and this out of fullness. Because I'm loved, I do. What else? We respond, but what else do we do to this information we remember? Remember. 
We have communion every week because we want to remember what Jesus has done. We need to remember that everything that I, my best effort is nothing compared to what Jesus has done. His body was broken for me. His blood was shed for me so that I could be with God. I can't do anything else. We need to be reminded and we need to remember because if you're anything like me, my heart drifts. The gaze of my heart gets easily distracted to other things. I need to remember. Third thing, we need to remind. Not only do we need to be reminded, but we need to remind each other. Being in community and being in relation with people is reminding one another of the goodness and glory of God. Reminding the, your friend, reminding your neighbor, reminding the, if there's somebody that's struggling, it's a follower of Jesus, like, listen, Jesus has done it. There's nothing more you need to do to earn his favor. You can't work off that sin. Repent, come back, love, like, turn to Jesus. Like, it's reminding one another. That's what relationship, part of relationship is, is going like, where are you, what are you trusting? What are you looking to for satisfaction? What are you running to for, for value and worth? Where are you finding your identity? We're reminding one another of what Jesus has done, who Jesus is, and why we're full and satisfied in him. And lastly, we repeat, right? We keep coming back to that. So often the Christian walk, I think, is, is shown as this linear path. Well, it's more like this, right? One day I'm going to get there, right? No, it's like this, right? We have these moments of victory. We're doing great, and then we're like, oh, let me come back. Just keep going like this. It's this constant reminder and repeating of coming back to the first things. That's why Paul, as he was talking to, I forgot off the top of my head, he says, he says just as you've received Christ, so walk in him. How did we receive Christ? By faith, right? Think about when you received Jesus, if you have. Where were you? Often we're like, we realize we're broken, we realize we're struggling, we realize we're weak, we realize we need him. Maybe we're filled with guilt, maybe we're filled with shame, right? And we go, yes, Lord, I trust you. Yes, Lord, I need you. Paul saying, just as you received him, so walk in him. Coming back to that space, even in Revelation, we're talking to the church in Ephesus saying, you've left your first love, return. So as we close in some music and we close in communion, <clears throat> worship team can come up. We want to do that. We want to remember as we're reminded. And I want to encourage you as we go through this week that we're repeating and remembering these things and responding. And I want to throw it out that maybe, um, maybe you don't and wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus. And maybe you're still, in, you're still kind of figuring it out. That's awesome. You are always welcome. We want to be a soft place for people to land. We want to be a place where people can come and find out who this Jesus is that I'm so excited about, who we're all excited about. But maybe you're going like, I want to be. It's simply having this, the same spirit and the same response as the thief on the cross. Saying, remember me. It's recognizing our guilt, understanding we need a Savior, and looking to Jesus by faith. And the beautiful thing about it is that when we do that, it can be simply a prayer. Like I've told my dad for a million times, he just said, yes, Lord. What happens is God begins to work in our heart and changes from the inside out. His Holy Spirit comes inside of us. But that very moment, everything you've ever done is forgiven. And you are saved. And you are brought in and adopted into the family of God. You are invited into his family where now you can 
flourish in a way that you've maybe never experienced. So we'll close in some music. If you need prayer, if you have any questions about that, please come.